Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. Good morning again. Welcome again. My name is Peter. I'm one of the priests here. Yesterday, 10 or so people from Church of the Cross participated in our silent retreat. This morning, we're going to do something a little different. I wondered if we might engage as we begin in our own practice of silence. I know that we have little ones in the room still, so there might be some squawking and interruption, and that's totally fine. We trust the Spirit to work even through that. But to start, I'd like to begin with a couple of moments of listening. We're going to take a minute just to be still, and then I will reread the gospel passage from John 3. I would invite you to just pay attention to any word or phrase, any feeling or imaginative picture that comes to you as you hear these words. You could follow along in the bulletin or just simply sit and let the words kind of come over you, receive them in a posture of listening. I'm going to pray and we'll start. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you inspire John in the remembering and writing of these words. And we ask now that that same spirit would enliven our hearts and our minds, that we might meet you, O Lord, in these words. Draw near to us, we pray. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life.
God, we trust that you are faithful to your people, faithful to speak. And we ask now that whatever your spirit is doing among us, saying to us, that that work would, and word would be sealed, continued, and furthered, even in these next moments. Would you continue to speak to us, we pray. We are eager to receive from you. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for participating in that. I trust that the silence, in the silence and through the words of Scripture, God spoke to you, met you in some way. Later this spring, following Easter, we are going to be moving through the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings in a sermon series of extended exposition, exposition of the fourth gospel. With that series, future series in mind today, I'm not going to focus on the entire reading from John 3, but rather focus on this single phrase, born again. It was found there in verse 3, Jesus replied to the Pharisee Nicodemus, and again in verse 7, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. This phrase comes with some baggage. We hear in it, perhaps, an association to a particular political perspective or identity, or we identify it with a specific church tradition or experience, revival, tent meetings, and the like. A few years ago, I was at a park here in Austin for a child's birthday party. I happened to have an invitation card to our church's upcoming Easter service, and I inadvertently overheard a conversation some others, some other group was having that made me think they might be open to an invitation. I interrupted and passed the card on that they kindly took. And one of them then said, thanks, I probably won't go. I'm a born-again pagan. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what they meant. It's like, is that a band or something like that? <laughs> but I think they meant something like thoroughly committed, hardcore, not open to other alternatives. And that might suffice for a sociological understanding of the identity as one born again, really hardcore. But I wonder if this morning the word of the Lord is an invitation to a richer, more biblically rooted understanding of this term that we might joyfully inhabit it, especially this Lent. With that possibility, that hope in mind, I'd like to focus our time on the readings from John and Genesis to expand our vision of this phrase expand our understanding of how we might be called to live as those who've been given second birth. I'm going to group our thinking around two headings. First, the catastrophe of birth, and second, being born again, again. First, the catastrophe of birth. A few years ago, I heard a remarkable lecture by the theologian Ephraim Radner. In this lecture, Radner made the observation that much energy in contemporary society is spent on the avoiding of catastrophe, making sure the catastrophic never happens. But in contrast, he said, very little energy is spent on developing resilience in the face of catastrophe, giving little attention to the practices, the postures that might help us endure the catastrophic. That's a problem, he suggested, because catastrophe is inevitable. After all, he said, our lives are bookended by the catastrophes of our birth and our death. It was not the most lighthearted lecture. It was remarkable, but not very lighthearted. 
I don't imagine it's very difficult to get us, for us to get in touch with the idea that our deaths could be a catastrophe. We'd prefer them not to happen or be delayed as long as possible. Part of Ash Wednesday is grappling with our pervasive avoidance of the reality of death. The idea, however, that our births might also be a catastrophe is one we might not so readily accept, though. Moms who've been through labor might be like, no, I get it perfectly. <laughs> but the notion, I think, is not just connected to this idea that we're born into a broken world marked by sin and suffering, uncertainty and injustice, but that our births themselves are radically disruptive, certainly for the parents, but also for the infant, right? Through birth, we enter into this different experience of existence, a radically different world. Grander and richer, yes, but one in which we are much more vulnerable. This notion of birth as a disruption, a crisis, even a catastrophe, is present in the biblical understanding of being born again. And it's present there in our text today. Nicodemus, you'll notice, comes to see Jesus at night under the cover of darkness. To be seen in public with Jesus would be too destabilizing to his status, his position in the world. Things would change. Even more so, look at our Old Testament reading, and we see that God's call to Abram is to leave his country, his people, his father's household. In the social setting in which this call came, it's hard to imagine a more disruptive invitation. Verses four and five give further color to this. Abram is 75 years old. He has lived a lifetime in this one location that he is now called to leave. And his departure is this massive undertaking affecting the lives of dozens, if not hundreds. Think about how much you don't enjoy helping friends move. Can you imagine the call Abram had to make? Can you imagine being asked by him to help, right? Is everything in boxes yet? <laughs> How many days would he have had to provide pizza and coffee and donuts? What God is calling him to is this enormous disruption. Abram and his family are giving up access to the wealth, the social capital upon which they have relied. They're giving up friendships and status, their position, the only geography they've ever known. They're giving up, in a very real sense, their identities. Life will never be the same. God wants to change your life. God wants to change you. The living God, the creator of the heavens and earth, means to bring change. Anglican theologian Peter Toon, in his examination of the doctrine of regeneration, titled Born Again, you can tell how I found it in the library, explores the idea that in Jesus, as we are made new, the image of God is restored in us throughout the book. But he argues that for the biblical writers, God is always the initiator of new birth. The phrase used in John 3 is just as easily rendered born from above by the Spirit. Even as it involves this human decision to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, this, from the scriptural perspective, God is the first one to move in our acceptance of him. It's only by the Spirit, by God's initiative, that we can lay hold of the truth that Jesus is Lord. God is the initiator. And that privileging of God's agency over our own doesn't destroy or eradicate our will and our participation in it. 
but it characterizes the whole of our lives as ones born again. It characterizes the new life of new birth. What am I trying to say? We, we conceive of Lent as this journey with Jesus to the cross, a journey of faith, walking with him, following him. That journey involves the disruption and changing of our lives. And by God's initiative, the transformation of who we are, it is unavoidable. To be on the journey with Jesus means to go where he intends. It means his priority takes precedent. It means that we come to share in his joins and pains. No longer are we the prime movers, the prime actors in our own story. No longer do our previous priorities hold sway. There is a severing of old ties and entry into a radically new way of life, a life of response to dependence upon God's generous initiative. Just like the early child's life is marked by responsiveness, reception from their parents. The season of Lent, this Sunday, provides this solemn reminder that Jesus, even as he fully embraces us as we are, does not come to affirm our current life circumstances and character as they currently exist. He comes to make all things new, including you, including me. And the call to be born anew inevitably involves this disruption, this catastrophe of our lives as they are currently unfolding. Disruption as we learn to take on these priorities, these pains and joys that Jesus carries. Second birth, a catastrophic disruptive entry into a new way of being. Jesus means to change you. Before we move on from this idea of the catastrophe of birth, I want to highlight two things. First, notice how physical and tangible Abraham, Abram's entry into this new life is. Notice that Abram does not say in response to this call from God. Hy hypothetically speaking, if you were to ask me to do something so radically disruptive as leave my country, my family, my father's household, I believe you would take care of my needs. He doesn't say, conceptually, I trust that you are able to bless me, to make me a blessing and my descendants a blessing, even as we stay right here. Like, we'll just mentally make a shift. The passage reads, the Lord said to Abram, go. So Abram went. His trust in God, credit to him as righteousness, involved physical obedience. It took on tangible expression. It affected his financial bottom line. It made him less secure materially. It altered his relationships. It relativized his tribal identity. It put him out of step with his culture and community. It's not that those things earned him righteousness. That's Paul's point in our reading from Romans. But they are the expression of his trust in God, his belief in the fulfillment of God's promises. The author Chuck Klosterman in a podcast recently made this phrase, said this phrase. He said, I believe in everything, kind of, and I believe in nothing, kind of. I think he captured something of our cultural moment contemporarily when he said that. We have a certain distance from convictions, open perhaps, but they're disposable. They make little difference substantively in our lives. We can try them on, take them off. But the reality is, in your life, in my life, our deepest beliefs, our firmest commitments are physically, are tangibly revealed 
by what we do with our bodies, by what we do with our money, perhaps in our screen-saturated culture, above all, by what we pay attention to. And our trust in Jesus, our commitment to him, involves tangible expression in our lives. But what we say, we do, we prioritize. Yes, faith involves these specific convictions about Jesus and all that he has done, all that he's doing, who he is. But more than just having the right mental furniture, faith is allegiance, is enacted loyalty to Jesus in every realm of our lives. I haven't eaten at my favorite restaurant in the world in 16 years, because it's in Hiroshima, Japan. <laughs> we lived there for two years, and it is called Lopez Okonomiyaki Shop. Okonomiyaki, you can look it up later, is like the most popular dish in Hiroshima. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of Okonomiyaki shops, and they only serve the one dish, Okonomiyaki. Lopez Okonomiyaki is remarkable for a couple of reasons. First of all, its chef is Guatemalan, a man named Fernando Lopez. That is incredibly unusual in Japan. <laughs> the second thing, also incredibly unusual, while we were there, Fernando decided, I'm going to close on Sundays. He said, I'm going to close on Sundays because it's a day of rest, it's a day of worship. Most of his friends were like, this is a bad idea. One dish at the shop, low margin, you are going to miss out. You're going to take it. Like, I don't know that your shop will survive. While we were there, Fernando decided, actually, I'm going to take Mondays off too. And it was this incredible expression of, for him of his trust in Jesus, a tangible expression of his confidence that God would take care of his family as he honored the Sabbath, as he set aside time for his vocation as a husband and father, God is going to materially take care of us. It took tangible expression, physical allegiance, enacted loyalty. Notice Abram only experiences the fullness of blessing in God, only becomes the blessing that God invites him to be by leaving, by going by holistically responding to the promise. The same is true of us. To be born again is a physical, tangible thing. It takes expression in our lives, born of the Spirit, but played out in our lives materially. The second thing is the blessing itself. The life that is on offer to Abraham, the born-again experience that Jesus calls Nicodemus, the fellow Pharisees to, is a life of blessing. Birth is a catastrophe, radically disruptive. But on the other side of birth is a richer and more complete experience, existence. A fuller experience for us, a fuller experience of the love of our parents, a fuller experience of the wide goodness of creation, of oak trees and breakfast tacos, of soccer and movies. Shannon and I have this picture of Lucy's first taste of chocolate, and you can see her mind being blown by the taste. On the other side of birth, there are tastes of God's goodness that are wider, richer, and better. What Abram is called to, what Jesus offers Nicodemus, though it involves disruption, though it involves loss and I'm sure pain, moving away from what they've relied upon and treasured is so much better than their status quo, than their current circumstance. The life 
to which Jesus calls us is better. It is a blessed life. In the language of 1 Peter chapter 1, being born again comes about by the great mercy of God, right? His initiative and provides a living hope, it's written there. To be born again is to orient your life around the conviction that God is good and merciful, is faithful to his promises in Jesus for you, for the forgiveness of sin, justification, adoption as his daughter and son, and for creation, the ultimate renewal, the restoration of what is broken, a living hope. That is a hope that is alive, that endures, that's not crushed by the circumstances of life because it's founded in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. A living hope, a hope that gives life, that enlivens and empowers us with the same vitality we see in Jesus. A living hope, a hope that can make our small lives a blessing as the life of the resurrected Jesus flowers in us. The imperishable life of God manifest in mercy and goodness to others in his name. To be born, to be born again, is catastrophic. But in Jesus Christ, it is this glorious and grace-filled catastrophe. We don't often do this, but I implore you, if you are here this morning and you have never set your trust in Jesus, or perhaps if this morning you feel in some deeper way you need to acknowledge his lordship in your life, do so. Put your trust in him. Acknowledge him with the words of your mouth that he is your Lord and Savior. Tell someone else that you might see, that you might enter into the kingdom of God. Okay, second final heading, being born again again. I know of a man who, when he made that initial confession, Jesus is Lord and Savior of my life, later in life, maybe 40s or 50s, in that moment, he was miraculously liberated from this debilitating addiction to cigarettes. He had smoked many packs a day for decades. And in the moment he confessed the name of Jesus, he was freed, delivered, liberated. This remarkable thing, never smoked again in his life. But I also know from him and from his children that his life with Jesus was marked by this continual struggle with anger and impatience, with sin that he longed, that his family longed for him to be delivered of. The blessed life of new birth, of physical and tangible faith in Jesus is one that we do not so easily embody. In the very following verses of Genesis 12, Abram's faith fails, dramatically so. Like the father of faith, the father of the promise, screws it up royally, almost immediately. Even as we seek to follow Jesus, to leave old ways behind, our feet fail us. Though the new life of Christ is in us, though the spirit has brought forth in us this new indestructible way of being, we remain in bodies of sin in a world marked, overlaid by systems of sin, in which you and I are weakly, daily complicit. To be born again is not to be removed from the human condition. I don't suspect this point takes much hammering for any of us. We are aware. Perhaps with Paul, we can each say, wretched are we. 
Who will deliver us? Daily, weekly, I need deliverance. I need the rebirth. There is, for so many of us, so often, this singular moment of crisis, this wondrous cataclysm in which we first come to know and receive Jesus as Savior, as Lord. This moment of recognition of our need because of our sin and our weakness. And this beautiful reception of him as the one who can do something about that. All initiated by God's mercy. By the the miraculous, gracious conviction of the Holy Spirit. In the illumination of our hearts and minds to the truth of who Jesus is. Initiated by God's mercy. But this is so very important. Just as the new life, new birth, is inaugurated by the mercy of God, so too is our life in Jesus sustained. It is the mercy of God that makes it possible for us to continue, that makes it possible for us to be perpetuated in the life of second birth. By his gracious disposition toward us, by the fact that his mercies are firm to the end, as we sang. So as you stumble, as you sin, as you find yourself complicit, confronted with your own weakness, lay hold of this truth that his mercies are new every morning, that his mercies endure forever, and set your confidence there, not upon your own righteousness, your own ability to live according to the law. Set your confidence there. His mercies endure forever. That your life might be marked by new and fresh beginnings of Jesus, in Jesus. One of the simplest ways we may lay hold of God's mercy for us is through the act of confession. To ourselves, but especially to others. I commend to you the practice of confessing your sins to someone else, to a priest who has been prayed for, equipped to receive your confession. It's counterintuitive, but weakness, acknowledgement, recognition of our sin is the means by which we encounter the enduring mercy of God. The mercy of God is a theme of this Lenten season. Alongside penitence, remorse over sin, the austerity of repentance. Right there, a theme for us in these weeks is the mercy of the Lord. As deep down as sin goes, the mercy of God goes deeper still. Just as Abram finds the Lord along his 500-mile journey, the Lord appears to him, so too do we find the merciful Lord with us, appearing in the depths of our sin and along the way. By his mercy, you are daily renewed so that your life can be different such that you are blessed and made to be a blessing. Trust in the mercy of the Lord. That's kind of where the sermon ends. But I have one more pastoral note that kind of relates, it's kind of like a postscript. But I know that for some of us today, we are living through circumstances, we are carrying things that make the notion of new life or a feeling of renewal and experience of it very difficult to hold on to. Life feels stale, you feel hemmed in, the promises of God seem dry. It's notable to me that in Genesis 12, along the way, Abram builds altars, along the way of his arduous journey. 
he erects places of worship. Tokens, physical reminders of God's faithfulness. Like at a basic level, I commend to you this practice, create physical reminders of God's goodness in your life. But more than that, I want to encourage you that worship is the way through. Worship is the way God's people endure catastrophe. It's the way they persevere in the new life he has won for us. Worship is the way through. And more than like a specific praise and worship song on your lips, though you could do worse, and more than this like cheaply optimistic refusal to recognize suffering and difficulty, what I want to commend to you is a posture of praise, a a reflex of adoration that you would tenaciously hold to the truth of God's faithfulness, the permanence of his mercy, and proclaim to yourself and others his goodness, his excellencies. And as you do so, just see if the new life of second birth does not well up in you. Worship is the way through. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.